follow Alex's lead, anybody can go to a place once, but why do you go to a place twice? And I think the good reason to say is that's when the first time around you see a serious and intellectually committed group of people who know how to cook conferences very well. And uh, uh, on my left, I see several very good cooks. Alex Stepan, of course, Alan Payend, who was off seeing Hamid Karzai, so his cooking was at the minimum in October, and uh, Rick Herman as well, uh, people who can cross disciplines and make things happen, which is the sort of thing that I think is very necessary when you're taking a subject that looks easy, but it really isn't because it can open so many doors, and that is the question of American culture and anti-Americanism. And since I'm the first presenter in this series, let me say a couple of things of what I think the subject means to me and how these gentlemen, we could call them the gang of three, so I don't have to use the names again uh, all that often, um, uh, why I think this is especially important. There's a lot of America, if you could recall, I believe it was Newsweek, came out with a cover right after September 11th, why do they hate us? And when I saw that overseas, I thought, why did you choose this title? Uh, it's, it's too open. It's too bad. Why should we assume that we are the center of the world? Well, in some ways, obviously, we are. The more important questions, I think, are the long-term questions as well, which concerns culture and American culture, however you want to define that. And that's one of the things I'll look at. And anti-Americanism, which I'll talk about um, a little bit more now. Uh, in one way, I could talk about long-term things, but it would be very deceptive if I were not to say the obvious that I am speaking to you after September 11, 2001. To ignore that fact uh, would make my comments appear ethereal. Uh, likewise, I'm talking less than a year after regime change in Iraq. Now, in one way, you can say America is used to regime change. We've done it in a number of places, or tried it in many more places, so big deal. We just have one more uh, that we're doing in that way. It is a major change, and it is a major transformation because it's fixed the imagination of everybody from people in intelligence agencies in the United States and elsewhere, and it has day after day sustained public attention on how governments talk to their people. Uh, ju there's just the possibility now that sometimes governments might lie to their people, even if the democratic governments, uh, no matter what side anybody takes, one is aware of that now. And a lot of that is focused on the Middle East, and what we say, we find, is very much translated elsewhere. No leader, whether he be in Palestine or Israel or the United States or elsewhere, can just talk to a domestic audience. Anything that person says has to be measured so that multiple audience can, can, audiences can see what is said. The same thing for our cultural products and the same thing for things such as education. Now, my particular theme is within this context is education and the media. But to talk about this theme, first of all, I have to ask, I guess like Bill Clinton, what is, is. Uh, what is anti-Americanism? I find it a very open concept, or to be more direct, I find it um, a very dubious concept if we think of it as one thing. I think what we have to do is think of it, uh, once again, as something that means something in very different places and different times. 
Is it something like being un-American? Uh, is it not American to do certain things or to say certain things? If you question the policies of a particular government, are you being un-American? One has asked that question recently. Uh, uh, and if one wants to clamp down discussions in some ways, one can say, isn't it in our security interest not to talk about that uh, topic? Or as I wrote in an op-ed, uh, first for the London Telegraph and later for the Los Angeles Times, after Condoleezza Rice recommended, only recommended, she said she wasn't censoring, to American television networks, don't show pictures of Osama bin Laden or give Americans an idea of what he's saying. Uh, you, he might have secret coded messages that he's getting out to people. Listen to us. We in the White House can tell you what he really means to say and nothing else. I, feel, I felt at the time and feel now that if you are going to give people a modicum, impute to them a modicum of rationality and reason, perhaps you should let the enemy, for I do consider bin Laden, Osama bin Laden an enemy, uh, translate him very clearly and let people see what he's saying. You might learn some very unusual things as you're going along. So anti being anti-American isn't exactly something like being a racist, like being anti-Semitic or anything else. Uh, it isn't really a conversation stopper, but it can have many different meanings in time and space. So one of the things that attracted me here is, is listening to Alex Stepan talking about anti-Americanism in Europe. And even in Europe, it doesn't take one form. It might take a certain form in Germany. It might take a different form in France. Um, a uh, man whose work I appreciate a lot, Jeffrey Wheatcroft, said in public not very long ago, um, that one of the things almost any educated French person will say is that the United States or American civilization is the first form of human organization to pass directly from barbarism uh, to, um, uh, barbarism to decadence uh, with nothing in between. That's a different form of anti-Americanism than one hears in other sorts of settings. But let's talk a little bit about the past in different ways in terms of education and in terms of media. Um, let me give you a snapshot. The year is 1968. Um, I'm in Morocco. Um, and one of the things that I'm doing is I'm having a luncheon with a judge, uh, prosecutor, uh, local governor, and a number of others very few of whom know passable French. That's okay. I didn't know passable French at that time either, so I was happy they were talking in Arabic. Uh, but they were explaining to me how handicapped I was as an American, even worse, an American student, graduate student. But such distinctions get lost if you don't know educational things. I was proud to be a graduate student. <laughs> student. Um, but um, uh, they regarded me as being handicapped because they said the French could provide us education with culture. You have an education of a mechanic. It was good food uh, I was being offered, but not much else. Because the notion was that the United States is good at fix-it things, but we had no culture. Uh, we had no sense of values. We had uh, nothing in any other, in any other way. And what you would see on the screens would not so much be American films. They cost too much. It would be the Hindi films, mostly. They were cheaper, sometimes better, I think. Or the, the fifth copies of a grade B American film 
um, uh, uh, that would show lots of violence where you didn't need the vocabulary. That's all right anyway, because the level of French in Morocco was pretty low outside of the capital, and the subtitles were all in French, because film distribution still is done on the basis of the old colonial dominions of the empire, and there weren't any, Mor there weren't any Arabic subtitles at the time. Uh, Let's go to Cairo in 1968. Remember, this is right after the massive Egyptian defeat. And I'll come back to June 1967 a little bit later. Um, was there anti-American talk? Yes. Did I at any point encounter personal hostility? Of course not. I can say, of course not, in retrospect. It did not go to individuals. You would listen to a tirade of 10 minutes or so about how ugly the United States is, how we were run by Jews, and everything else at the end of it. Oh, let's have coffee. Let's talk. Okay. And you just learn, as, as some Israelis do, to keep quiet. And sometimes when you got to know people well, you learn the security provisions to protect Americans and others in case something really fell apart again, as it did in June 1967. At the worst of times, at the lowest level of the Egyptian government, the word was protect the foreigners if something starts going really wrong, especially the Americans and others who might be, uh, who might be especially at risk. Since I'm in Egypt, let me give you a sense of media and the way media has changed, because I think to talk about anti-Americanism, we have to talk about the changing ecology of what people know and how they get to know it about things. Saladin Ibrahim just visited your campus, so perhaps that's a good point of departure. How many of you heard him in this room? Wonderful. It's a pretty good number, I think. A few years ago, before he went to prison, um, he had to go because, remember, his career began when he was interviewing uh, the assassins of Sadat who were condemned to death, and he was able to conduct interviews with them in the early, uh, um, uh, in, uh, uh, at, the, at the time of their, uh, right after their, their condemnation, sending to prison. He was telling me about how he was a high school student, secondary school student, in his final year in Cairo in June 1967. Everybody was excited because they knew that the Arabs had won the war against Israel, that the Egyptian army was in the suburbs of Tel Aviv, and that it was a matter of hours before the glorious Arab armies would have the capitulation of the Israelis. They all believed it, and if you remember the news accounts of the time, so did the Egyptian army, cut off in their regular communications. They pathetically listened to Radio Cairo, and when the lies were broadcast about where the Israelis were and where they weren't, they would go to those places, and they didn't get out of those places in any cases, but he knew it. I would like to argue, as, as Saad would, that after June 1967, there was a media consciousness amongst Egyptians where one no longer trusted official radio for anything, where one began becoming much more critical than most Americans are today about sources of news and getting as many sources as you can, as you can knowing how frail any one of those sources might be including American sources and everything else. Let's go to the Sultanate of Oman, 1982. Again, giving a sense of media ecology and how information comes. Until 1982, I heard almost nothing in the Sultanate of Oman about Israel or the problems of the Arab-Israeli uh, dispute. Then came, in the fall of 1982, pictures of Sabra and Shatila, because just then, the televisions were able, the, the state television station was able to get CBS broadcast feed before they weren't able to get it. 
and they could broadcast things pretty close to when American audiences would see them as well. This riveted the attention of Arabs in the same way that pictures on BBC satellite television of Ayodhya uh, at a time when Doordashan, the, the state broadcasting monopoly in India, forbade all pictures of what was going on in Ayodhya, where you have the Hindu-Muslim conflicts, as, as you know. And, and the result was to fix everybody's attention. They might not have understood the words of state television, which were neutral. It's almost the same words that CBS used to narrate things. But from the pictures, one would construct one's own narrative and think about the outside world, and people would turn to me and say, why is the United States doing that sort of thing? The cultural level, I would have, a, I guess, a sort of rough and ready theory of things. The less somebody has had exposure to the foreign uh, world, especially prior to the advent of satellite television and other things, the more fantastic the notions of what people are doing on the other side. I do not think that in the Sultanate of Oman today I would have questions such as I would, as I would in 1982. Tell me, said one student, graduate of high school recently in the south of Oman, uh, is it true that Americans have no marriage and that uh, you can sleep with anybody you want? And exasperated after a long day of frustration with government officials and so forth, I did something I rarely do because you're supposed to always be polite, I guess, as an anthropologist. I said, no, it's not true. I said, you have to knock on the door and if somebody is sleeping with someone else, you have to knock on another door. <laughs> no. um, I felt sorry for that later because I was talking to somebody who, you know, later on we, we talked about some other things, but it didn't get much better. He said he'd heard this from his brother who was in Los Angeles. Well, am I going to... Maybe it was that certain part of Los Angeles that I hadn't visited. Uh, with the greater increase in communications, I don't think most people transfer directly from what they see in movies, what normal life is in any way, but there is this image of the other, but the image of the other, let's get that in a moment. There's three things that I think that are different today when we think about media and things being. Very few people get ideas of other places from media alone. There's increased travel and rapid communication. Even people who cannot read and write effectively or who are from areas where the postal service still doesn't work will uh, uh, have relatives somewhere in Europe or North America or friends of relatives who can come back with tales about what it's like over there. Those tales may be perverse. Uh, they may be distorted. You may not want to say that you're a dishwasher, an illegal worker living in a grubby place. You may want to emphasize the glamorous because you can be a big person at home and send money back, probably through the Hawala system, which everybody's looking at now, or money changers who are working through not illegal channels, but channels other than banks because the banks are lousy at getting into rural areas honestly and of delivering things. So you go through older systems that work better. Secondly is communications. The price of communications has dropped rapidly. Many in this room will remember when even to talk to Europe, you'd have to wait for two days to get an appointment to use a telephone, and even longer if you were somewhere else. Uh, that time has passed, uh, except for North Korea, and I don't think there are very many North Koreans in this room. Direct distance dialing is a reality, and the prices are quite affordable, and everybody knows how to do it. 
you have telephone, you have fax, you have electronic mail, which is not exactly free in many places, but it's close to free for anybody with a modicum of education. Uh, you have a number of means of getting information back and forth that is highly personal to you and you alone, and that is almost instantaneous, that reinforces the personal ties, which may not always happen. And finally, you get something very simple to think of, rising levels of education. For Muslim-majority Middle East, you might think of the Muslim world as the people of the book, except that the highest levels of illiteracy and the lowest rates of book production in the world happen to belong to the Arab Middle East, unfortunately. The ability of Arabs to censor and control books, to make it hard to get books across international boundaries, I can only say is astonishing. I put a lot of time into a non-governmental organization effort to start peer review publication and translation of things. And let's, let's just say that, uh, unlike others, I wouldn't just talk to the nice NGO people. I would talk to the police censors and to others to get an idea of where the bottlenecks were. And uh, let's just say they were different from every country. In some countries, uh, such as the Sultanate of Oman, the police censors were actually rather nice people. They themselves would go to international book fairs, pick up books in Arabic, and form a kind of band book of the month club and get the books circulated amongst those who cared about certain sorts of things. And actually, I think it would increase circulation of some books because you'd say, here, it's, 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 it's Khalid from the police department. He says, this is a banned book. Come on and read it. It's not going to pass formal censorship. This is fine. But the rising levels of education are important. Maybe an example is useful here. When I first came to Morocco in 1968, I with a rather awkward local Arabic, would sometimes have to translate from the radio newscasts, which at that time were only given in modern standard Arabic, for those who study classroom Arabic here, um, into what I could do of local dialect because people couldn't understand it very well. By the 80s, I was out of a job. And later, I could go back for a pilgrimage uh, watching people returning from the pilgrimage and ask a number of women wearing, they were in that part of Morocco, towels on their heads as kind of headscarves. When are the pilgrims coming back? And someone would reply to me, not in Arabic, not in French, but in English, towel on her head. Um, I just telephoned the airport. Uh, they're going to be 45 minutes late. Thanks. Thank you and they would go on to a local shrine to say something else. The levels of education have gone up if the quality of education has not. And this means increasing access to things. One forgets when one hears about Al Jazeera satellite television that it doesn't take broadcasting in Arabic because for those of you who are Arabs, you're very aware that from Morocco to, uh, to Iran, there are millions of speakers of Arabic in Iran, there are many different dialects of Arabic and they're not necessarily mutually intelligible. If you send a Moroccan to Baghdad and you speak to somebody in local colloquial, the result will be total miscommunication, almost total miscommunication, unless both are educated to classroom-style Arabic, in which case there's no problem at all. But it is the advent of mass higher education that's permitted a communication across barriers and across boundaries. And the increased use of foreign language for many usually not learned in schools, but learned through other means, through working and other things, it's fine. Khalil Shikaki was telling me earlier this week, the Palestinian pollster, that a large number of members of the preventative security force of, of the Palestinian Authority speak fluent Hebrew 
Of course they would. They learned it in prison, in many years of prison in Israel. And that has formed a good working relationship with their Israeli colleagues since that time because of the education that they got in school. Moroccan nationalists of an earlier era would tell me how they learned their French in prison and how they regarded prison in the 1950s as their university because people active in politics from all over the country would be brought together, put in the political wing of the prison, and could talk with one another and plan for the future as a result, thanks to the uh, consideration of the French of putting them all together and raising the level, raising the level of things. Okay. The one thing to say about media is media now pervade more. They make other places more accessible, even if the other places are not very well understood. And the media can be misused in many ways. If you have not seen it, since I, I've been visited by the FBI because one of my colleagues uh, at Dartmouth uh, chose, as far as I can tell, one of my colleagues uh, had heard that I show a uh, Bin Laden recruitment tape uh, from the spring of 2001 to my classes under the principle that you should know what messages there are. Something available via Columbia University, by the way, in part with translation on the World Wide Web uh, and should be available, uh, it is available in other places. I show it to my students, it's in Arabic. So we translate it, I give them a script to go with it. Uh, but on legal advice, I also make sure it's only my students who can go, who can go into the room. And when somebody says, can I see the tape, uh, who flashes a badge, I'll say, certainly, please register for Dartmouth College and uh, <laughs> sign up for the class. I'm offering it next year. Otherwise, that's the only thing I'll do. Because the, the, just a side note, if you believe in academic freedom, for those of you who teach, sometimes, you know, without just saying the words abstractly, you have to very politely remind the forces of order that it means something and you, the badges stop at the classroom door. Uh, so that within there, if you're doing something related to what you're doing, you can go ahead and do it, do it as well as you can. Uh, but what we would see on that tape that would be the most stunning part of it, except for the fact that I had a rather bad copy, uh, is, is that you would think that they had graduated from UCLA's film school they would take as some of the most revolting and attention-getting pictures of what's wrong with the alliance between corrupt rulers of the Middle East and the West, photographs from CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox News, BBC, BBC Asia, um, uh, Israel television, uh, Al Jazeera satellite television, Saudi official television, and other sources of that sort, and turn them on their head. There's nothing to make you feel worse if you're talking about the Americanization of Saudi Arabia than seeing a number of Saudi princes doing a tribal dance hand in hand with American generals, their badges flashing up and down straight off of satellite television, with the implication, because pictures can do that, that they might be dancing right in Mecca itself, which of course is not, is not the case at all. But the images can convey something that's powerful and disgusting. Uh, and the pictures, uh, the pictures coming out of Palestinian Authority or other places or Bosnia or Chechnya are equally rough. And you can string these together and say a very different sort of narrative that will persuade people not to run off to Afghanistan necessarily. That's another part of the film though to show you what the solution can be. Train and you too can do things. Some of my students would say on seeing the film, it's just like the Army of One commercials 
that you too, as a single rock thrower or somebody training in the wilds of somewhere, can make a difference and realize your dreams and change the world your own way too. It's a horrible message, given, given what is done. Uh, uh, however, seeing how the message is delivered and trying to imagine who's taking that message seriously, I think is part of what we want to do when we look at various types of anti-Americanism. Let me move now to the question of to the question of education. I've already talked about what I see as a revolutionary change in education, the massification of education, of having large numbers of people rather than an elite getting, getting, getting educated so that there is a common market of ideas. You can't have a common market of ideas, however, until you have a common language and a common set of images you can talk about. That's one of the reasons I mentioned to you Morocco in 1968 as, as compared to later times. But there's another way that you get a common market of ideas. We talk about something that used to work very well because it doesn't work that well any, anymore in some places. The US Peace Corps in the early 1970s came to Morocco. This was at a time when the Moroccan Minister of the Interior was a wanted criminal in France for his part in the murder on French soil of Mehdi Ben Barka, a leading, uh, uh, a leading Moroccan uh, nationalist uh, of the time, uh, who died twice. I'm sorry to be gory about it, but later, as we found out, Hassan II, to make sure he had died, had a habit that Hitler had and others had. He wanted to see the man's body lowered into an acid bath uh, so that he knew the body was really disposed of. And so such a film, or at least somebody has set down their memoirs, because Moroccans bring out memoirs, uh, was made. But in the 1970s, Peace Corps people came, uh, the French in Morocco would make a point of never speaking to students outside of class and giving the grammar, and I'm sure you know how well you can learn language when you just learn grammar and nothing else. The Peace Corps came in with something that we could call processual way of learning language, getting people to talk and talk and talk until they're dead from talking, but they learn it. And being side by side with the students doing it, seeing them sometimes outside of class and so forth. And this rubbed off on another generation of Moroccan teachers of English then. So your French teacher would always be very formal and very distant, just as a good proper French person should be of another period. And the Americans, while not being a backslapping level of intimacy, at least would be accessible and you could talk back and have fun learning the language at the same time. And a language which now people want to learn because it's so hard to get into Europe, but at least for a while, it looked like it was a lot easier to get into Canada United States and other places and to do more business since English even my colleagues in France now often teach bilingually at the graduate school level in English uh, and in French. Uh, with private education in the Middle East now business schools usually give highly intensive English and business lessons and brag of associations with Canadian and American institutions. Al-Akhawain University in Morocco uh, the old American universities of Beirut and of Cairo, missionary in origin, no longer. The new American universities that are always local in origin, uh, not given funds by the United States. The American University of Kuwait, with whom Dartmouth College has a new institutional relationship. The American University of Sharjah, 
Sheikh Zayed University doesn't sound American, but there sure are lots of Americans on the faculty, and the deans are all American. You feel just at home there. Um, uh, uh, all of these are a sign of something very different. American education, whatever one thinks of American foreign policy, American education is thought of as the best product around, better than Britain, better than France, better than other countries. You make your own decisions, but this is the kind of branding that an American-style education has now, and it's rather good. Subject-oriented, oriented toward promoting individuals, transparency in what one learns, uh, and everything else. At the same time this is growing, something else is happening, but I would hope that the United States would begin noticing these things in terms of public diplomacy. In the 1980s, a decision was made in the United States that since so many people wanted to learn English, we didn't have to spend any money subsidizing the learning of English anywhere anymore. So that's very good. If you have money, you can learn English well, and if you don't have money, you can't. Okay? Simple as that. Likewise, if you have access to private education, you can get very good education in the Middle East, and if you don't have access to that, you can get taught in Arabic with the same old textbooks that have been used for years and years, and you don't get a good education, which is too bad. Or American libraries overseas. One point in Marrakesh in the 1970s, one of the most popular cultural institutions among students everywhere was the American Library of the United States Information Service. Cheap to run, open, accessible, the books were actually there. Uh, no other institution in the country had that level of openness. There were other American uh, uh, libraries, uh, USIS libraries as well. These have all been shut down on the principle somebody else can do it. We don't have to, we don't need to do that sort of thing. For Morocco, uh, multiply that by every other country of the Middle East. Multiply by it as well the opportunities for Americans to learn foreign languages where the money has been going down on a regular basis. Uh, this, is, this is too bad in many ways. A very common attitude, though, in anti-Americanism gives us region, reason for hope. American education is thought of in the area as something where you have a genuine exchange and sharing of knowledge, a transparency, both in terms of intellect and in terms of practice. It's rather nice, but it's something that works at the private level. And maybe that's good, and maybe this is something which we can do where we don't need guidance from state authorities. In media, let me just give you one figure. Al Jazeera Satellite Television uh, works on an annual budget of $254 million annually. It has very good audience ratings. The Coalition Provisional Authority has a television capacity. It has $700 million a year to work with. Uh, they did a Gallup poll last September in which they found that the least trusted source of information was the Coalition Provisional Authority. The most trusted was Al Jazeera Satellite Television. But now, as one of my colleagues said today, in the model that we used after World War II for Europe, uh, we are now launching American satellites to give American news, as seen from Washington, and I suspect I already know the poll ratings for the American satellite television. Better have good music, uh, because if it's got news, it's going to be right down there with the coalition provisional authority, most likely, as opposed to some of the other things that we can do well. Let me sum up. I'm giving you two popular perceptions from, Mar uh, from Morocco, but it could be other places. So just as I left Morocco last June, I was there from the beginning of the coalition of the willing 
invasion of Iraq until um, after the May 16th bombings in Casablanca through June. Uh, there's a popular song from Ahmed Sattati, Atini passport, Atini visa, give me a passport, give me a visa. Uh, to go somewhere else. Anyway, it's a long, sad song, and I don't want to bring tears to your eyes, but we'll come back to it after the joke that was making a Moroccan ambassador told me this in 1991. The joke went 1991 that King Hassan had decided to join to protect Iraq, and it was aiming a Moroccan Scud missile. Moroccan had no Scud missiles to the uh, uh, on the uh, um, foreign ministry in um, in Paris, and the technicians pressed the button, and the scud didn't go off the ground. Pressed it again, and these being Moroccan technicians, they never went out to the site until the third time it didn't work. So the king will be on us. We better go out and see. They found 400 Moroccans clinging to the scud, hoping to get into France without a visa. <laughs> uh, in terms of the United States, one of my students uh, was there when I was in Fez this last spring he was in uh, Rabat and there was an anti-American demonstration uh, right near McDonald's as it turned out uh, it wasn't a complaint about the cholesterol, it was a complaint that was a symbol, it was kind of convenient and the CRS the riot police uh, were there to welcome the students in the way they had been trained to do so well and they did it, and the slogans were against America. Uh, they didn't dare say anything against the current monarchy, but you could say things about America. But my student, who's kind of easy to spot, is an American, is hanging around, has pretty good Arabic. And some people came around him, you American? Yeah, yeah. Smile, and said, that's fine, we hate America. Yeah, yeah, fine. Can you help us get a visa to go to America? <laughs> so it's, it's very much the same sort of thing. The important thing I think I would leave you with is, yes, there is anti-Americanism. Combating it is probably not going to do much with the Ministry of Information trying to, from the United States trying to explain why our policies are coherent. Uh, giving hard rock music, even if it's of American singers people want to hear, is probably a little bit patronizing, as many people say. Uh, slick magazines that are subsidized showing beautiful pictures of Hawaii and regions of the United States are kind of nice, but meanwhile the news says you're being fingerprinted and photographed and everything else, to which Brazil has reciprocated, in case any of you are going to Rio de Janeiro soon. Uh, but the important thing is that people are fairly rational and realistic about parts of things. American culture isn't all just a negative thing. Those bad films are fun to watch. They're not used to characterize everything, and the films aren't all that bad, but the art films don't make it over there. The things like uh, the equivalent of good, the good, the bad, and the ugly are the sorts of things that I, I think work better. But the sorts of things that really get picked up, even if they're on a slow burn, are things like reliable translations of books. Because even if a few people read them, those people talk to many others. There I would invest money, as long as it would not be, as the Ben Franklin program in Cairo has been, translating such things as the collected speeches of William Jefferson Clinton, or now the collected speeches of George, uh, uh, George Bush. Uh, those no doubt have an avid audience somewhere, 
but uh, I doubt whether many of you have read those books, and I doubt whether many people wish to see them in translation. However, other sorts of things are just not available in reliable and inexpensive editions in Arabic. Giving these aspects of, quote, culture, often through private or intermediary initiative, initiatives, allowing an exchange of people, as we used to do on higher scales than today, and not just the one-week junkets, but longer types of stays at different levels of education, can make a real difference. There are such ventures. They're often in private hands, and I would like to see more money going into those private hands to do those sorts of initiatives, because I think that's the, the turnaround time won't be immediate, but, but the long-term effects, I think, will be very substantial for the United States and help us in America also understand the limits of anti-Americanism. Thank you very much.